You're listening to a bonus episode of the Accounting Influencers Podcast, Talent in Accounting, with Rob Brown. This is your access to world-class accounting leaders, global influencers, and thought leaders. Discover what makes accounting firms great and accounting professionals world-class. Welcome to the Accounting Influencers Podcast with me, Rob Brown, and we are talking about digital well-being and mental health. I'm thrilled to have with me today, for the second time, an expert on the subject. It's Bailey Parnell from Skills Camp. Hello, Bailey. Hi, Rob. I'm glad to be back here again for this conversation. Well, it's wonderful to have you. Not everyone gets asked back a second time. So uh, just for the benefit of those people, and we'll put the link to the show in the show notes, Bailey, that went on your last podcast interview where we talked about career development and soft skills and managing change in a VUCA world. Do you want to just sum up that episode really quick for us on the key things that came out in our discussion? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, We were talking about how in this VUCA world, which means volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity, basically in this rapidly changing, wild, so much information world all the time, what are the skills that we need to, to get through those changes and to thrive really in the future of our own career growth, but also if we have any aspirations for leadership? And we spent a lot of time on inviting more, which means a growth mindset, optimism in practice, resilience, and the interconnectedness of each other. And so if you are interested in any of those skills, you should go listen. Beautifully put. Thank you so much. And uh, you mentioned information and, and overload, and we are in a deluge of social media and information and Google knows everything. We've got chat GPT and AI now that is taking over the world. So frame this for us. We're talking to an audience of uh, professionals in the accounting and fintech world, highly pressurized, super smart, really qualified people. But as we said last time, everyone's contending with something. Nobody has it easy. Nobody's got life sorted. We're trying to make sense of the sheer amount of information and responsibility coming at us. This speaks to mental health and digital well-being. So what are the the key parameters of this discussion, Bailey? Yeah, well, for anyone who listened to the last one or who has yet to, what brought us here was when we were talking about that VUCA world and we were saying the volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity, part of that complexity is is the digital world now that didn't exist in in its current form even 10 years ago. And in that digital world, we have all of this information i mean more information than our brains we imagine we have like a version 7 brain but the level of information coming to us is like version 12 like we are not we don't have it to to sort through all of that information and make sense of it and then reflect on what it means for us in our life with all of that coming at us that's adding to the complexity and what feels like for many of us volatility. So part of that is our um, our digital cultures like social media. Um, because my research and my master's research is about social media and mental health, I can tell you a ton about this. I also have a nonprofit called Hashtag Safe Social where we teach people just about this. But nowadays, while I can certainly, that is a connected, I've, I've actually found that this is more connected than ever to my world at Skills Camp, which is my soft skills development company. Because while it started before, most especially in the pandemic, and I don't think it's ever going back, we've become heavily reliant on digital in work world and also most especially in knowledge work world. So so here we have the digital cultures now are work cultures. If you were trying to create a culture at work that supports mental health and well-being, you can no longer not include digital culture because for many of us, probably even half of you listening, are either working remote, working hybrid, you're here, there sometimes, you're at work. 
even when we were in the office, maybe the colleagues you were talking to were just in another part of the building. And so you were, were forced to go digital anyways. So I think that in this conversation, it's like, how do we find health and peak performance, which is what we all want. We want to perform, but we just want to do it in a healthy way while also managing all of these uh, requirements from our digital life these days, whether that's work stuff like Slack and um, you know, I am constantly on and how do I manage that? And how do I do a hybrid work? How do I include people in a hybrid workplace where we're on Zoom all the time? And then also my personal, uh, you know, social media addictions and um, consumption. Well, deep into social media for sure, it does play a huge part in mental health. But let's take the term mental health. It's certainly become more acceptable. I'm from a generation where you never admitted weakness. You you never admitted that you are you were not able to cope, particularly as a man. If you showed any weakness on the playground, you got beaten up. Women would talk about it more. The girls would be more expressive and communicative in saying they had problems, but certainly in a man's world. So we've got this situation where mental health is at a premium. We're bombarded with messages, identity, who we are, where our worth comes from. So mental health is becoming more okay to admit, more open to talk about. I've had professional firms now having mental health first aiders. So they're, they're not first aiders where they just help you if you slip and break your arm. But if you have a breakdown or a meltdown or you can't cope or you're overloaded with something, somebody can talk you down off a ledge. Which is so wise. I mean, even in businesses, this is wise. And in some of the like some of the folks listening now, your organizations are some very stressful organizations. And let me tell you, if someone's having a panic attack, they are just as um, they are what's it, compromised as someone who sprained their ankle. <laughs> like they are not seeing clearly, they are not thinking clearly, they are not performing at their best. So it actually seems very wise to have, um, you know, mental health responders and counselors or leaders who are just versed in this on hand. The other aspect to the mental health thing is that more and more leaders and managers are not just asked to lead their team professionally and commercially, but to be psychiatrists, therapists, shoulders to cry on, coaches, consultants, advisors, mentors. That's a whole different dimension to a leadership role. I'm I'm here for it though. <laughs> like I know it seems like a lot to people who have never worked this way. It seems like, am I really supposed to play all of those roles? And I think <laughs> actually you're supposed to play more of that role than you are managing things. Because theoretically, when you start leading people, that is the job. It is people. And that's the way it should be. So, you know, I'm on this like tirade in the world of work that that's what leadership should be. It should be about people and um, and the things will fall in line. But if the people are put first, if you're going to have a human centric workplace, you'll keep your people and they'll grow with you. And you will um, hopefully, from my perspective, I mean, of course, I own a learning company. I'm like, you can teach these too. Like you can teach a leader um, crisis response. You can teach a leader even um, de-escalation. We teach, uh, you can learn this. So imagine as part of your leadership onboarding, it's not just, hey, you got the job because you were the best coder. It's now you have an entirely different job. Like you are, you are now managing people. That's your job and they do the coding. So let's focus on the world of people. Let's even talk a little bit about mental health and psychology because these are the problems that come up in your job. Code not working should be their job and they should be empowered to do that. So it's kind of like a, it's, it's some companies are there, some companies are not. But I do like what you said about how mental health in general has become a topic. And for some of you, you're going to say, oh my gosh, you know, everybody has a mental health concern these days. And I've had people say to me, like, does it seem 
that young people are the only ones who have, like they have all these stereotypes like Generation Snowflake or something like that. Well, let me tell you here, I've thought about this a lot and I think here's what's happening that has made it so that young people and Gen Z, who are now working with you, by the way, are um, why, why there's more dialogue about it today, I think is for a few reasons. The first is education about this, like stigma breaking education. And that was the awareness work that's been done, I think, most heavily in the last decade, Um, like very specifically. This is the um, even public service announcements about this. This is the organizations partnering with your celebrities talking about mental health. This all was really hyper-focused in the last decade, which gave people, and especially young people, the language to describe what I believe was always happening with them. Did this happen in my parents' generation, my generation, your generation, Rob? Yes. A hundred percent. We always had anxiety and stress and depression and all of these things, but now we had the language to identify it in ourselves. Now, just having the language is the first part of three, if you ask me, because if you have the language, that still doesn't mean that you feel safe saying to someone, oh, I know it's depression. Oh, I know it's anxiety or I'm having a panic attack, but to actually say it out there is, is another thing. And because of all this awareness, we also had a, a stigma breaking. Like, so there's there's less stigma around it today, most especially with young people, because they've never known anything else. So they are now only, they they know how to describe it and they're willing to say it. And then the third thing is social media. Like we cannot ignore how much of an impact this has had, especially on young people. It is an always on thing that doesn't turn off. Every stressor you ever had in high school, every stressor you ever had in university, coming home with you, um, not leaving, can't leave the bully, like comparison, all of these things just hyper escalated all the time and no education about digital well-being. So you put these together. Yeah, we're talking about mental health a lot more. And then we have the VUCA world that is rapidly changing. And I'm thinking of styles of leadership. You work with a lot of leaders, Bailey. There are still those old school leaders that are there to get the job done. And if you can't get the job done, man up or get off the bus. I'm taking the people with me that can cope. And then we're seeing the emergence of a more feminine, if you like, compassionate, empathetic, vulnerable style of leader that is willing to make an example of themselves and say, hey, in some areas I'm struggling. And that gives permission to their team to come out, if you like, and admit the same. Well, you're absolutely right. And it, this, I would say this is a feminist style of leadership, though I mean this in the academic phrase, which is like, it's inherently equity-based. It's inherently what do you need, even you listening right now, like if you could design your circumstances to do the best work, imagine the workplace could support that. Literally everyone wins. You're doing better work and then I'm getting better results and then the company is doing better. That's actually like what would technically be called a you know feminist leadership style, but what I would call human-centric leadership and what I would think, what I'm going to put my claim on now is, is the future of work, most especially in the face of globalization, automation, AI, robotics, all of these things that don't have that human focus um, coming in and um, maybe taking some of our jobs away or just reshaping the work, the world of work. Like very often we talk about the jobs that will be lost, but if you look at some of the reports from the World Economic Forum, they also estimate this part is often left out of the news story, that there will be more jobs created in other ways. So the skills that are evergreen that serve you throughout a lifetime are very often these soft skills we're talking about, like adaptability and um, communication skills and leadership skills and resilience to be able to cope and navigate those. So to the hardline leaders, I have seen, especially in the Western world, a phasing out of those leaders, let me tell you. So it's got to reconcile with that. It's a risk. 
Because the new generation, the gener- you only go younger, right? We're not going the other direction in time. True. And mental health issues, whilst it might seem like they're the domain of the younger people, what a midlife crisis. We know that the people in the 40s, 50s, 60s form what, what is called the pivot generation. They're right in the, the hub of the wheel. They're looking after teenage or young children. They're at the maximum of their earning capacity. So there's huge responsibilities at work and probably the longest hours that they're working. They've maybe got commutes. They've got elderly parents possibly that they're looking after. So they're right in the middle of the storm. They're having mental health issues and, and why can't they have the breakdowns as well? So it's every part of society now. Yes, and how liberating. Like, what, So we teach intergenerational communication and understanding at Skills Camp and it was an early area of my personal research. And um, what I found was that even though we start with generations, there are some things that are inevitably different that should at least be understood. Like the time that people grew up, there were things that just can't change about when they grew up. The technology of the time, the politics of the time, what was um, our relationship to the world of work has been changing over like hundreds of years dramatically. And um, parenting at the time, that changed too. Government, like what we act in different times Literally, what did governments fund? Did they fund child services or child-related services? Or did they focus more on adult-related services or elderly-related services? So this stuff is the stuff that can't change. But when we talk about the qualities that are more stereotypically attributed to Gen Z and maybe Gen Y is, you know, things like transparency, like meritocracy, like um, feedback and openness and vulnerability. When you actually start digging into the research about this stuff, you will find that Gen X and boomers want the same stuff. They just didn't feel the autonomy to be able to demand it 20 years ago. But now it's like, I'm getting shivers because it's like, they want every time they report, do you want a more empathetic workplace? Yes. Do you want a workplace where the person who rises to the top is the one who does it best, not because they're the daughter of the owner? Yes, we all want that. Would you like it if you didn't have to take a sick day or like a vacation day to go to the doctor because for some reason they're open like nine to five and everyone's working? Yes, that would be amazing. I wish I didn't have to use one of my two weeks of vacation to go to the doctor. Like everybody wants the same stuff. And so really it would be just like a revolution if we could all unite in that in the mutual desires that we actually have as opposed to focusing on what what divides us generationally. Let's camp on the role of social media in this, Bailey. I'm reading one of my favorite authors, Calvin Newport, Digital Minimalism, who talks about the the sinister power of screens and how addictive they are and how they've become the new cocaine and how clever advertisers and marketers and social media platforms are at luring you onto their platforms and getting those little bursts of dopamine. It's a problem, isn't it? It's a perfect segue too, because this is also an intergenerational concern. Because, of course, the tech and our digital lives are changing in the workplace, uh, led mostly by the younger generations. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. The tyranny of the screens is strong. I mean, you have social media and not just social media, but e-commerce in general. Like if you're doing any sort of e-game, like gaming on your phone, if even if you're um, sometimes doing shopping like on an app or something like this, the e-commerce world is designed it's what it's what otherwise called the economy of attention. And essentially everything is competing for your attention, your finite attention. So every time you give something a like or share, or these days, 0.5 seconds longer you spend on an advertisement, that becomes a recorded transaction attributing value. And now this actually means 
monetary, fiscal, and social capital as well. So I'm sure we've all heard of something like an influencer who has amassed social capital online and has related this to financial capital in the offline world or social capital in the offline world, like access to things others don't have access to. So we have this literal whole ecosystem designed to keep you there, even with a decision as small as making the notifications red because it gets your blood pumping and you want to remove it. All designed to keep you there. Now this has worked. Let's be honest. This has worked from a from every level. I would say that there's a that there is mass addiction to social media and screens right now. If by every measure, actually, and this is of great concern to me because I in my work I define social media as a risky behavior. Similar with online gaming, all these sorts of things. A risky behavior in psychology is very simply something where when you participate, you expose yourself to potential harm. And we know for sure now that you expose yourself to potential harm. That could be stress, that could be um, abuse, that could be trauma or PTSD because you never know what you're gonna get in a scroll. Could be frustration, could be experiencing all these VUCA elements of the world, these uncertain elements, but having it all the time and then suddenly not realizing why I'm always anxious and not realizing how the screen plays into it. Literally, I mean, every part of our screen culture, even physically, you know, there's a rise of carpal tunnel. I have, I had tennis elbow. Tennis elbow is actually because if you can see me in this video, I am demonstrating, it's an overworking of your wrist without the rest of your arm due primarily to screens. People are reporting this muscle hurting more because of the phone sitting on their pinky. There, more people are nearsighted because we're looking at screens all the time. This happened to me in the pandemic. So there's actually very real physical uh, sociological, psychological consequences to our screen culture. And of course, those effects work. There's another dimension to it too, Bailey. There's a very popular documentary on Netflix currently called The Minimalists with the tagline, Less is Now. And it's a couple of guys in the States who have recognized that when platforms like social media have huge audiences, the advertisers and marketers rush in. So TikTok is now one of the biggest e-commerce sites, as is Amazon. And we have this deficit type marketing, which tells you that you're never complete until you have this car or this perfume or this item of clothing or this next thing. So there's there's that whole mental health thing going on that I've not got that and I'm not that celebrity and I can't compare with them until I've got that. How does that play out? Right. And not only do marketers tell you you're not good enough, they create the need and then tell you. <laughs> I was literally watching a show last night and I, they were like saying um, that Women never used to shave their legs. So then they had to create the first that women, you should shave your legs. And so they could sell razors <laughs> like, right. like this kind of stuff is wild. And yes, it's happening right now too. But um, comparison is you've heard, heard the quote, the thief of joy. What I actually found in my research of which the basis was social comparison theory, conveniently enough for us. Um, the social comparison theory is the idea that people compare ourselves very naturally to construct our own identities. This could be as simple as I know that I'm a tall person because when I looked around and saw other people, most of them were shorter than me. Therefore, this informs my identity as a tall person. This continues to happen, but it's most especially prevalent in puberty or like around 11 to 25 range is when it is most prevalent because that's the age where you start to go outside of the home to compare yourself to peers. Peer to peer engagement starts there. But like I said, this lasts all throughout life. So you find yourself in your midlife concerns, you're 50, and you're comparing yourself to what did I want? Um, what are other peers at my age doing? They look at they have all this vacation time and I don't. However, in my research, we looked at 
at the different types of comparison though. And so we looked at upward comparison, which is kind of imagine deeming them better than you for some reason, you like their shirt better, whatever. Neutral comparison is just that you make a comparison. It's okay. We're on the same page. And then a downward comparison is, is deeming yourself better for some reason. Um, now, traditionally upward comparison, when you see them as always better than you relates with a decline in mental health. Yeah. You're inferior, aren't you? You're not good enough. Exactly. Right. However, this is what I think is the most empowering part of my research and of this in general. There were people who were in my sample who reported making upward comparisons and somehow it led to an increase in their mental health. Their mental health improved. And what were they doing? I actually can say that I relate to this. What they were doing was because they had an optimistic mindset, because they had a growth mindset, here's my analysis. They looked at someone who had a better shirt or who was traveling where they wanted to go and they said, oh, I'm going to go there. I'm going to add that to my vision board. I, um, oh, you're graduating? Well, I'm graduating next year and I'm currently working on that. So whatever, like, that's cool. That's my goal. You're motivating me now because I'm seeing that. So somehow they were able to turn what was, what could bring someone else down and turn it actually into motivation for them. They were the, what, you know, the most mentally well, as you would say, because the comparisons were not taking away from them. And, and there's something that we can all take from that. Another aspect of mental health is our accumulation of stuff. The fact that it's so easy to get something now, to buy something, to have it on your doorstep within 24 hours. There's no deferred gratification. There's no let's buy it when we've saved enough for it. And we accumulate all of this stuff, which doesn't make us happier, contrary to the promises of the marketers that are selling it to us and the advertisers. So we get all this stuff, we get all this overload, and it makes for a, a very unhappy place to be in some people's minds. And then they've got to go and do a professional job and and perform optimally. Yeah, I suppose my initial thoughts on that are, as I have a giant bookcase with a lot of art and books and stuff on it, there's <laughs> there's stuff there for sure. <laughs> but um, but I would say, remember how, I can't remember if it was this podcast or our last podcast, but with all of this information coming at us, our brains are not built for it. Like we have a, it happens so fast that we have not had time to evolve as a species, very honestly. If we are a version seven brain in a version 12 world of communications and, and information, I can see why there's this movement towards minimalism. Like, really, I can see why people are like, I'm not clear mentally. You're probably not. And you're looking for ways to become clear. And you can do that through internally. You can do it psychologically. You can do it physically. Like, for example, you know, I work out. I don't love it, but I do because I experience the benefits in my brain when my body is healthy. You know, I'm not trying to be a bodybuilder or anything, but I, for me, it's like a peak performance strategy. It's like, <laughs> do my knees hurt? Does my back hurt? Because if my back is the thing distracting me, it's still distracting me. So you can focus physically on um, health and well-being, on minimalism, like mentally. It's like, how do I make room? You know, how do I do the, maybe it's a therapist, maybe it's resilience, maybe it's whatever you got to do to feel mentally clear, or you can start from the outside, like the actual stuff that's in your life. And that's why I see the movement towards minimalism happening, which is how can I start with my environment on just becoming clearer in this VUCA world? Bailey, we'll put your contact details in the show notes. Just tell us quickly what you do at Skills Camp and how you help companies. Yeah. So I love that we've been able to dive into all of my live 
all parts of my life on, on this podcast, but at skills camp, it is a soft skills development company. So if any of your organizations want to get further into soft skills, um, like optimism or resilience or stress management, we can design education programs there. And then the safe social nonprofit that I own is safesocialmedia.co. And that's where we talk about social media's impact on mental health. And, um, now me personally, this is just all the stuff I talk about. So if you're, if you're, Thinking about digital well-being or how digital culture is workplace culture these days, I'm your person and you can find me at Bailey Parnell on everything and hopefully the good side of social media. Terrific. And, and just in closing, Bailey, for the professionals listening that are recognizing that mental health is an asset that needs to be guarded and cared for, what words of encouragement and advice would you give to them in closing? For some reason this popped into my mind. Every CEO or high-performing athlete, whatever you name it, I have ever worked with as a mindset coach, almost every single one I have ever worked with. And let me tell you, mindset coach, a mindset coach. Therefore, what they're saying, what I'm going to say to you is that high performing people see their brain as a muscle. They see it as something that that needs to be continually developed. Like I go to the gym and like I need to be learning and um, the circumstances are going to change. So my wisdom to you, you know, my last piece of advice would be if you want to perform, you got to see your mental well-being as part of that. You don't just get to turn off your brain when you go to work. That's great. Such a powerful message, Bailey. It's been wonderful speaking with you today. Thanks so much for your passion and your insights. No, thank you for having me again. It was great. You're listening to the Accounting Influencers Podcast. 